I spent the better part of this last week in Dallas visiting friends, and every time I go home to Texas, whether to visit friends or family, I am always amazed to see at least one or two off-brand churches still holding tent revivals. Tent revivals in the 21st century. If you're thinking, oh, that's Texas, I've actually seen one on Truman Road quite a few years in a row, so no pass there. If you have never been or survived an outdoor tent revival, in the movies, it's quaint. In reality, it can be torture. It's not just the heat and all the bugs. But these things last a long time, hours and hours, many, many stanzas of are you washed in the blood, and preaching that can best be described as sweat, stomp, shout, and spit. Their favorite verse, John 3.16. I think it's pretty safe to say that John 3.16 is the most popular verse in the Bible, It stands alone. It has such iconic status that it gets printed on poster board and held up behind home plate or at the Super Bowl. And I've always wondered if someone knows nothing about the Bible or the church or anything, what did they make of a sign that just says John, the number three, colon, the number 16? How is that evangelism? But I've also thought that even those of us who grew up in church and memorized it as little kids, that misunderstandings abound. What I want to offer today could best be described as a Galileo-like reading. You know, Galileo who claimed that the earth moves around the sun. You may or may not know his story. You probably know pieces of it. He was a devout Catholic was going to be a priest before settling upon a life in mathematics and science. He went against the teachings of the church when he declared the Copernican theory was true, that the earth moves around the sun. So they put him on trial. See, the church read the Bible, and the book of Psalms says the earth shall not be moved. And if the Bible says the earth shall not be moved, well, then the earth doesn't move. And Galileo said, no, that's not how it works. It actually, you know, and so they put him on trial. And at the end of the trial, found guilty of heresy, legend has it that as he left the trial, he muttered under his breath, and still it moves. I love that line, and still it moves. You can say whatever you want, but it moves. It moves. Something similar, I think, happens with John 3.16. There is a traditional understanding that continues and continues. It's in the air we breathe, and no one seems to overcome it. It goes something like this. God created this place a really good world, and we screwed it up by sin, and because of that, we deserve to die. But Jesus came. God so loved the world that Jesus came, took our place on the cross so that whoever believes in Jesus or, as they like to say, accepts Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior, language not found in the New Testament, whoever does that will not spend eternity burning in hell, but will spend it in heaven with all of the others who accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Amen. And that's how it goes. 
And, and if you say to them, well, that's one way to read it, they would tell you, that's not, that's not an interpretation. That's what it says. Just read it. Okay. And it looks to me like the sun moves across the sky. Things aren't exactly as they always seem. A hundred years ago, the theologian Walter Rauschenbusch offered this great little parable to help people understand two ways of reading Scripture. He was a kind of pioneer in the social gospel, and there was a revivalist way of reading it, but there was another way, and it was a social justice way. And he said, he gave this analogy. He said, a man goes into the forest, and it's full of birds everywhere. They're flying around, they're mating, they're singing, they're building nests, birds everywhere. And he never sees a single one of them because he's a botanist. And Rauschenbusch said that if you view the text through a revivalist lens, you will always get a revivalist interpretation. But if you view it another way, you might see something you never saw before. So I want to offer a kind of Galileo-like reading because while the New Testament is mildly interested in what happens after death, it is much more interested in what happens before death. So no stomping, shouting, or spitting. But about now you should hear the sound of a tent coming down. Because a different reading really depends on several key words in the text. It's only one verse. When John uses the word world, it can mean any number of things. Sometimes that word is used to refer to everything that exists. We would say the universe and beyond. Sometimes it refers to this planet that we live on, and sometimes the people that live on the planet, and sometimes that term world is used to describe the dastardly ways of a culture gone awry. And John actually uses all of those at one time or another. But in this case, it's very clear that what he is proclaiming is God's amazing love for this place and the people who live on it. For God so loved this world and all of the people on it. And that love that's used, that that word love there, is this extravagant, self-giving, never wanting anything in return, just pouring out kind of love. For God so loved the world that, well, God gave us Jesus. And the traditional interpretation is to die on the cross. But that word gave has nothing to do with death. There is nothing in that word to imply death. In fact, the gift of God is not Jesus' death, it's his life. God's gift to this wonderful world and people is the life of Jesus. And the life of Jesus was one of feeding the poor and teaching people and healing people and caring for people. That is God's great gift to us. So that whoever believes... eh, not a good translation. My Greek professor used to say, you know how you have the noun bath and you make it a verb by putting an E on the end? I bathed. He said, we really need to do that with the word faith. Put an E on the end. Whoever faiths. But even that doesn't quite get it. It really is it's saying whoever responds to the life of Jesus, whoever says, yes, to the life of Jesus, to the way he lived, whoever says, I'll throw my lot in with that way of living, those are the people who will not perish. The word has nothing to do with burning in hell. 
it actually refers to life that has no meaning or direction. People will flounder if they don't respond to this life of Jesus. They won't find meaning. Those who respond find meaning, and they don't, they don't flounder, but instead they have eternal life or everlasting life. Well, you know, you remember the figure eight on its side was infinity, and so you think mathematics, but that's not what the word means. The word refers to a fullness of life. Those who respond will find meaning in life, a fullness of life. Here's, here's a way to think about it. Chaim Potok was a great Jewish novelist and writer. When he was growing up, his good Jewish mother used to say, you're going to be a doctor, you're going to keep people from dying. All his life she said that. You're going to be a doctor, you're going to keep people from dying. He finally told her when he was a young man, Mom, I'm not going to be a doctor, I'm going to be a writer. I don't want to keep people from dying. I want to show them how to live. That's it. That's the ministry of Jesus. Showing people how to live. You know, even in the next verse, the little word saved is used. But that's not saved from the fires of hell. It really is about being made whole. That's what the New Testament means by salvation. Finding shalom. I have an Episcopal priest friend who serves a church now in Kentucky, but she used to be the principal liturgist at the National Cathedral in D.C. Pretty impressive little gig. And I was on sabbatical there, and I met her. And some friends had told me that she used to be an actress. And she had the looks to make that believable. And so when we met and we were getting to know each other, I said, so I understand you used to be an actress. What's the story? And she said, yeah. And sure enough, she had done commercials and eventually landed a regular gig on one of the soaps. She lived in New York, made a ton of money, lived in a nice place. We would call it the good life. And then she walked away from it all, went to seminary. And I said, so what happened? I mean, what was it that happened? And she said, I got tired of telling stories that weren't true. I wanted to tell a true story. That's eternal life. Now, you'll never hear this in a tent revival, I'm pretty sure. But if your life used to be about fashion, and now you volunteer at a clothing pantry, you have found eternal life. If your life used to be about restaurants and being a foodie, and now you feed the poor, you have found eternal life. If it used to be about the bar scene and now it's about restorative justice or the environment, that is eternal life. It's funny because in a way it turns out the earth is the center of it all. Not in astronomy, but in theology it is. This place where we live and following this Jesus, that is eternal life. A couple of summers ago, I read this great book that I never in a million years would have picked up on my own. The title alone, I thought, uh-uh, not going there. Anybody ever heard of How Starbucks Saved My Life? I thought, you got to be kidding. This is about some nut whose grande lattes were how he made it, you know, and I just thought, I'm not reading. But this minister friend of mine said, no, 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 that's not what it is. You've got to read this book. And he was right. 
Michael Gates Gill was a 50-something advertising guru in Manhattan at the top of his game, at the top of his profession. Six figures or more, Brooks Brothers suit, $5 cup of coffee in the morning. So what? No big deal, right? I mean, he just, he was on top of it all. And then things started to unravel. Lost his job. Thought, well, I've got connections. I'll make my own firm. He started his own firm. It, it kind of did okay, but not great. He had an affair. Fathered a child with the woman. Got a divorce and was diagnosed with a brain tumor. By the time he was 60, his world was undone. He dressed up, went on the interviews, trying to find a job. Nope, 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 nope. And then he thought, I'm going to go to Starbucks for my last $5 cup of coffee. Just a little treat. The African-American woman who was the manager was holding a job fair, and as he sat down, she jokingly said, you looking for a job? And he jokingly said, yeah. And what was a joke became a real offer, and he got the job. He went to work minimum wage at a Starbucks in Manhattan. He kind of had visions of being a barista, and she said, no, you're going to clean the restrooms. Minimum wage, cleaning the restrooms. One time, he spied this homeless man coming in and making his way to the restroom, and he cut him off and, and lied to him and said that the restrooms were being repaired. They were closed. The manager who'd hired him saw him, called him in the back, and said, you do not ever do that. Every person who comes into this place is worthy of hospitality. And Michael Gateskill his worldview changed. He came to see the world differently. He even came to see cleaning the bathroom as his way of restoring sanity to the world, of cleaning the world. And he came to see all the people differently, the mostly African Americans that he worked with and that he'd never noticed, and all of the people coming in to order, whether in suits or tattoos, he came to see the world differently. And that's eternal life. And near as I can tell, that's John 3.16. And I would love to know what you think about that.